From Spa Damer and Tenney, it's White Coat Wellness, a show for doctors who are ready to improve their financial wellness. We know you work hard to help your patients, but you can't be at your best if you don't have your own finances in order. In White Coat Wellness, we highlight real-life stories from physicians and dentists to educate, encourage, and inspire you to personal, professional, and financial wellness. Now, from Spa Damer and Tenney, please welcome your host, Shane Tenney. Today's episode brought to you by SunTrust Mortgage and our good friend Jason Watkins, specializing in flexible mortgage financing options specifically for doctors and dentists. To have a conversation with Jason, you can Google search Jason Watkins SunTrust Mortgage or call him directly, 704-654-6058. Today, we're going to talk about uh, finding peace and hope in the midst of life's crazy, unexpected surprises and stress. Uh, Dr. Carmen Teague is not only the director of internal medicine for Atrium Healthcare, but is first and foremost a wife of her high school sweetheart, a dedicated mom of four, board member of Bless Back Worldwide. And in 2017, she reluctantly published her first book titled Motherhood, Medicine, and Mayhem, and uh, joins us today to share a little bit of her story on finding sanity in the midst of the stress. In fact, actually, today is going to be part one of what I'm pretty sure will end up being a two-part conversation. Uh, Carmen, thanks so much for being here. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So you've got some really thoughtful perspective around uh, trends in medicine and physician burnout that I know we're going to cover probably in our next episode. But I wonder first if you can just uh, help us get to know a little bit more about you. Sure. So unlike a lot of docs that I talk with, you openly say that medicine wasn't your first choice of career. Uh, maybe you could start at the beginning and tell us a little bit about the uh, the early years for you. Absolutely. In fact, medicine was the furthest career from my radar in all of my formative years growing up. Um, in fact, I thought I was going to be a missionary. When I was in the fifth grade, I remember the teacher, the first day of school, having us stand up, tell our name, what we wanted to do when we grew up. And I popped up and said, hi, my name's Carmen, and I want to be a missionary. And the teacher put her hands on her hips, and she looked at me, she said, what in the world is that? And I popped back, oh, somebody who tells the world about Jesus. And she politely asked me to sit down and moved on to the next uh, student. I never in a million years thought that my calling as a missionary would end up in medicine. I loved people and knew I liked to talk to people. And even that teacher knew I liked to talk a lot. So I thought I would go into counseling. Um, diplomacy, I entertained that thought for about three weeks as a freshman and then moved on to a degree in psychology with a minor in speech communications heavily on the performance side. So I had a blast in college. Um, all my pre-med friends were studying all the time and I was having the time of my life and it was awesome. And where'd you go to undergrad? I went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Go Heels. Amen. Love my Tar Heels. So it was an amazing experience and I was blessed to go there on a scholarship that had me very busy with summer internships. So it was a lot of fun, a lot of experiences, a lot of amazing um, people that I met along the way. And all along, I knew I wanted to help people. I knew I wanted to make life better. And I was planning to get a PhD in clinical psychology and become a doctor of psychology. My senior year, mid-semester, I had an encounter with a pastor um, by the name of David Chadwick, who 
folks may remember, who has spent most of his career here in Charlotte. And in the midst of speaking to him after an event in Chapel Hill, he let me know that Gordon Conwell Seminary was opening a campus here in Charlotte. And he suggested I may think about getting a degree in seminary before going on to the academic wasteland of a PhD in psychology. I entertained the thought for a whopping two weeks, filled out an application, and the next thing I know, right after graduation, I was starting a degree in Christian counseling at Gordon-Conwell. I took classes in the Charlotte campus for about a year and then transferred to Boston and was loving every minute of the experience and ended up spending a year at a state psychiatric hospital for the criminally insane and the indigent insane in the state of Massachusetts. And in that bizarre setting, I fell in love with medicine. And I all of these people around me, very wise, intelligent, clinical people saying I was wasting my life and I really needed to rethink my direction. And I was devastated. I never entertained that thought and was completely convinced they were all wrong. I fought it, kicked, screamed, yelled, and went ahead and applied to PhD programs. That was a colossal fail. My husband was going to law school at the same time, and he got into 10 out of 10 schools to which he applied, and I did not get into 10 PhD (laughs) programs. And so with my tail tucked and my heart down, I entered a dark night of the soul and just had to do some serious soul searching to determine if medicine was my career. And I started taking classes at night back in the North Carolina area at Duke, Chapel Hill, Durham Tech Community College. And before I knew it, I found that I was enamored with organic chemistry and anatomy and physiology. And my path to medicine was not an overnight flip of a switch. It was a begrudging, dragging my feet, kicking and screaming, saying, God, are you sure? Are you really sure this is what I'm supposed to do? It took me two years to take the prerequisites, but right before my 28th birthday, I started med school at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And here we are. Absolutely. And uh, and so along the way, though, you not only fell in love with medicine, but mm-hmm. I think you fell in love with Joe. <gasps> I did. And that's a funny story as well. I met my husband on a blind date in high school. Some mutual friends set us up. We had a lived in the same general area, but attended different elementary and middle schools and found ourselves at a party set up on a date my junior year of high school. And I thought, this dude is different. He had a different haircut. He wore a lot of black, a lot of Led Zeppelin t-shirts. And I'm telling my friends, this is so not going to work out. And I was so wrong. So we dated about six months. And then he left for college and I decided we needed a break. So I went to be a foreign exchange student in another country in Paraguay for a couple months, came back to the States. He was in college and we reconnected uh, my senior year of high school and the rest is history. We have been soulmates and best friends ever since. And married young. Very young. So we got engaged in college and we married when we were a whopping 22 years old. I graduated from Chapel Hill on Mother's Day and three weeks later married my very best friend on D-Day. And that's the only way he remembers our anniversary. And we were both 22. Yeah. So we'll just keep reminding everybody that's very young, at least for our kids (laughs) who might be listening to this. Good point. Good point. um, We grew up together. That's what we jokingly say. And and in the midst of getting married and then moving to Boston and then uh, changing career trajectories, 
your family plan uh, oh. didn't unfold quite with the timing no. that you both had in mind. I jokingly say that my life verse is Proverbs nineteen twenty one, which says, Carmen may plan all things, comma, but the Lord's will be done. And that was absolutely the case as far as family planning and fertility as well. In fact, you never think about fertility until it doesn't work. And Joe and I got married at 22 and we had this grand plan that five years into marriage, we would think about kids. We would be in our late 20s. It was the perfect age, etc. Well, five years into marriage, I was starting med school and he was a second year law student and it was not the best time. So we hit the pause button and we waited another couple of years. And then my last year of medical school was a great time, we thought, to have kids. So we planned an entire year of my med school classes around having the last four or five months off so we could have a baby. Of course, we had to conceive within a three-month window, and that didn't work for a second or third month. And we're like, oh, bummer. And instead, I ended up going to Africa for a couple of months and doing some medical missions work. And I'm like, okay, fine, God's plan, whatever. But from that point on, we realized, hmm, maybe having a baby's not so easy. And we stopped preventing, which is really the same thing as trying, but nothing happened over the next couple of years. And I was getting a little older. And then by that point, you engage with fertility specialists and you start going through these rounds and rounds of tests. And in my case, we'd been married almost 11 years at that point. And I started being eaten alive with guilt. Oh, my goodness. I've postponed childbearing years. I've been so selfish with a career. And it's amazing what kind of tricks your mind plays on you during this fertility process. And it was agonizing and it was painful and I was convinced something was wrong with me and I knew just enough to be dangerous because I was starting my residency and I had been through all the fertility classes etc so as a resident we were actually going through fertility treatments which sound crazy but I was getting no younger and we thought we couldn't postpone this forever but I've been down that path of Clomid for months, and my husband said I was the Tasmanian devil the whole time I was on it. Having been married to me for 10 years, he could probably say that. And then we uh, went through multiple uh, fertility procedures, including IUI or intrauterine um, insemination, and none of it worked. And we decided to take some time off, kind of an exasperation. And we even resorted to meeting each other at a Motel 6 when I was far, far away from him. I'm on a rotation and nothing worked. And in our fertility doctor's wisdom, he said, you need to take some time off. You're a stress ball. This is not working. You really need to step away. And we were to the point of thinking, okay, wow, maybe maybe we're not going to bear children this way. Maybe it's going to be the adoption path. And in the months that we took off, well, good old-fashioned bearing of children happened, and I became pregnant with our first kid 11 and a half years after we were married. Yeah, yeah. And having walked that journey and – and having my own familiarity with it, I know when you're in the midst of that and just the shame, frustration, sadness, the emptiness that comes. And then, and then people say pithy, trite things to you. And you think you're the only one in this situation. Yeah. And and I guess I'm curious, um, having, having gone down that path, when you meet someone either in the office at church in the community and, and the topic comes up or they, share their struggle with fertility, which is so personal. What do you say? 
I just listen. I have found that every one story is slightly different and the emotions you go through may be different, but you go through them in different phases, just like grief is a process. You go through it in different phases. And I found that when I talk to patients or colleagues or friends who are going through infertility, I just sit. I just listen and allow them to pour out their heart because it's very difficult Everybody has a different story of how they come to fertility. You can be 22 or 42 and be struggling with it. And I found that allowing folks the space to cry, to curse if necessary, to just let out the emotions is incredibly powerful. If people ask, I'll share my own story, but I try not to share it unless people want to know or they want to know others who are inspired by it. Well, I am asking, so I do want to know because I know you ended up having two daughters and I then did. you have a pretty neat adoption story I do. and maybe you could tell us a little bit about I that I can so on one of those first dates in high school and I know we met on a blind date I cannot tell you if it was the first date maybe the second I have a vivid memory of my husband talking about adoption and how he thought it was a beautiful picture of God's grace and how he wanted that for his life someday and I thought huh that's pretty deep coming from a 17 year old. I should keep him. Well, I did. So fast forward, you know, 10 years and we started the fertility shenanigans, if you will, in earnest. The adoption narrative was always on the back of our minds. And we're like, okay, well, are we adopting now? Are we going to try to have our own kids? Is this something we should talk about or we should wait or whatever? So it was always a running theme, I would say, on the back burner. But we were never really ready to go down that path until we had exhausted everything with fertility. Well, I did end up having two daughters about two and a half years apart. But I am not the poster child for pregnancy either. I was very ill and almost died with my second pregnancy. And I say that not tongue in cheek with all earnesty. I had a condition called hyperemesis gravidarum. So I was very sick and lost a lot of weight with both pregnancies. And then I had gestational diabetes with both pregnancies. And I was on insulin five times a day at the end of my last pregnancy. I was very brittle. It was horrible. And I had my very dear friend, colleague and diabetologist say to me, you can't go through another pregnancy. You won't survive it. And you may leave two children without a mom. And that's a pretty devastating thing to hear when you're actually a medical professional. So after the birth of that child, we realized that our family was not finished and God had laid adoption on our hearts for a reason. And maybe it was time to re-energize that discussion. So when our daughters were around four and one, we started talking about adoption again and started exploring what does that look like? And I think for the 10 to 12 years we've been talking about it, we had in our minds, we were going to go adopt a little girl from China because that was the thing to do. And that was kind of the adoption narrative you heard from people. And we quickly realized, wait a minute, international adoption is not that easy. And at that time, China was closed and we had two little girls. And we're like, maybe God's calling us to something different. So we looked at international adoption. We actually were fairly far down the road with South Korea and Guatemala. And literally overnight, both of those countries closed their doors. And if you've been down the adoption path, you understand that can happen with different countries. And that was a frustrating six months. So we said, okay, back up and punt. 
we will look at domestic adoption. We'll just adopt right here in Mecklenburg County. We went down that path for a while, and unfortunately, that door slammed in our face as well. There are lots of factors that go into adopting locally, and we did not meet the criteria that the folks in this county thought appropriate. I'll leave it at that, but it's a complicated story, and you can read more about it in my book. But it was kind of devastating because there's a lot of kids that need adoption, and it was a frustrating process. So then we said, okay, fine, we'll just adopt right here in, in North Carolina, if not in our our county will try local adoption and then you quickly learn that adoption is a morass of legal rules and complications there are 50 states 50 sets of laws very little reciprocity and even with a doctor and lawyer as two people trying to figure it out we were overwhelmed so we sat down one night pretty much exasperated as we'd been down this adoption path about 18 months at at this point And we literally Googled adoption consultant because we thought, surely there's somebody out there that can help us navigate this path because we're not doing a very good job. And sure enough, um, there are companies, um, a handful here in the United States that are adoption consultants. And for lack of a better analogy, they're like headhunters. You pay them a flat fee and they serve as agents that look at adoptions or adoption agencies with states and favorable laws. So instead of signing up with one agency and being at the mercy of whatever opportunities come in the door to that agency, you're surfing multiple agencies at once. So we liked this agency. We found them in April, signed on with them a month later. And within two weeks, we had a call from an agency in Oklahoma that said they had a baby who was due in a few weeks and a birth mom that was interested in talking to us. So we're like, oh my, this is a little faster than we expected, but awesome. So we had a few conversations with that mom. And at the end of the second one, she asked us to take her son. And we were completely, utterly, and totally overwhelmed. And I hung up on a Thursday night and called everybody I knew and said, I'm going to have a baby boy in two weeks. And I owned nothing blue at that point. I didn't sleep much that night. And the next morning, I got a call from the consultant that basically said, hey, pull the plug, stop everything. This is not going to happen. You need to pass on this opportunity. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That baby's mine. What are you talking about? And we learned that in the, the week that we had been speaking to this birth mom, she was not engaging with her agency in Oklahoma. And we had a relationship with the consultant. The consultant had a relationship with the agency. And this birth mom was with the agency. So it was a triangle that was a little convoluted. And our consultant, in trying to protect us, said, something's wrong. You really need to walk away from this opportunity. And I was devastated. I cried all day Friday, all day Saturday, most of the day Sunday. Ended up in the prayer room at our church that Sunday with two women who had adopted. And I knew I know that was divine intervention because they helped me kind of work through, okay, you know, maybe this woman's going to parent. Maybe the role in her life is pushing her to that. I'm like, I don't like it, but if that's the case, great. That evening, we were at home and received a call from the consultant. And the consultant said, you need to sit down. I'm like, oh, the woman called back. Yay, yay, she's in. She's like, no, 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 no. Sit down. I sat and she said, I have a bog. I'm like, I am not following you. She said, I have a baby on the ground. I'm like, great. Did you drop it? What's the problem here? She said, no, no, no. She said, I just got a call from another agency in California that has a baby boy who has been abandoned at a hospital over the weekend. That's known as a bog or a baby on the ground. She said, this agency needs a family in California tomorrow morning. If you say yes, he's yours, but you have 10 minutes to make a decision and you need to put the Oklahoma baby out of your head. And we're like, what? <laughs> and we took a deep breath and we said, you have to give us five minutes. We, we need to pray through this. Mind you, my girls were two and five. 
At the time, I hung up the phone with the consultant. I called my parents and I said, get in the car and start driving here. They live about an hour away. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to need help, whatever happens. And we went to two rooms in our house and we prayed like we have never prayed before. We came back to the kitchen. We were playing chicken around the bar. And I said to my husband, I'm like, so what God tell you? And he's like, mm, no, you first. What God tell you? We, we kind of need the same answer here. And luckily, we both had this overwhelming sense of, we go. We say, yes, this baby needs a home. We can do this. We call back to the consultant seven minutes later, and she's like, great, but there's a complication. And we're like, what? And in that seven minutes, another family had gotten ahead of us for that baby. And it had to do with delays on servers and information traveling across the United States. But long story short, the agency that had this baby also had another family that had had a failed adoption the very same weekend. And in the world of adoption etiquette, if you have a failed adoption, meaning you travel for a baby, birth mom changes her mind, then you have right of first refusal with the very next baby that comes available. And this bog was the next baby. So the agency is in Washington State. The baby is in California. The other family is in Michigan. We're in North Carolina. That's three time zones. And so we were at the mercy of waiting it out. And the consultant said, you need to give this family 24 hours to determine if they can mobilize and go again. Thus, I entered what I jokingly call adoption purgatory. And for 24 hours, I cried and I waited and I waited. And it was by far the longest delivery ever. 24 hours later, we got a call on that Monday night and the consultant's words were simply, so I hope you have a name picked out. I'm like, what? She said, that family passed. You need to get on a red eye and go get your son. And so we did. We jumped on a red out of California that night. And on Tuesday morning, after my son had been born on Friday night, we um, adopted Titus. And it was phenomenal and amazing in the most amazing six hours of my life. We got to a hotel room with this baby and we decided we owed the woman in Oklahoma a call or an explanation to let her know that our life had changed because the Thursday night before four days prior we told her we would take her son so we called the consultant this consultant got a message supposedly to the birth mom and we thought that was the end of it however the very next morning as we have spent the first night in a hotel room with a baby boy that I had no idea what to do with our phone rang and it was the birth mom from Oklahoma and she asked me four questions all four questions about the boy we just adopted and then she blew us away she's like wow this is great now my son can have two sisters and a brother who's adopted just like him and from the depths of my soul and I have no idea how out of my mouth came sure he could so my husband walked back in the hotel room with an ice bucket dropped it on the floor and said, oh, my word, what have we done? I'm like, I don't know. So two weeks later, we flew to Oklahoma and we got our second son and Tyre became part of our family. My sons are two weeks and five days apart. And who would have believed that adoption could go from zero to two in three months, but we're living proof that it can happen. Life's not been right since. So I have at that point, I had a five-year-old, a two-year-old and two infants. I don't remember much about the next year because it was a blur, but it was beautiful and fun and chaotic. And I cannot imagine our lives without them. Absolutely incredible story. So no doubt this is clearly all the resume that's needed to be featured on this podcast about managing sanity and chaos. So um, we're going to take a quick break and then I've got a couple more questions for you right after this. I'm Will Coster, and this episode's White Coat Wisdom is sponsored by SunTrust Mortgage. 
We often get questions about physician mortgages. What are the pros and the cons of these types of programs? While I can't say if they're right for you, I wanted to use my time on this episode to discuss some of the details of physician mortgage programs. In general, these programs are designed to be flexible, to meet the unique needs of physicians. The mortgage companies know that physicians typically carry higher than average debt loads because of their student loans. They also know that income during training hinders their ability to save for a down payment. SunTrust's physician loan program is available for physicians during residency and fellowship, and for practicing physicians and dentists who have completed their training within the last 15 years. MDs, DOs, DDSs, and more are eligible for this program. Specifications of these loans will vary from lender to lender, but SunTrust program, which is one of the best our team has come across, offers 100% financing for homes up to $750,000 with no PMI, or private mortgage insurance. Now, there are credit score requirements for this program, but in our experience, SunTrust has been able to be flexible and find solutions for physicians with certain circumstances. Bottom line and the takeaway for all of this, if you're a physician in the market for a new home, you'll want to consider if a physician loan is right for you. If you'd like some more information, we'll put some links in the show notes. And as always, drop us a line if you'd like to talk to a professional about your specific situation. I'm Will Coster, and thanks again to SunTrust for sponsoring this episode's White Coat Wisdom. So, Carmen, early in your book, again, Motherhead, Medicine, and Mayhem, to remind our listeners here, you said something that sounds to me like a life theme for you, I'm guessing, um, and it's this. It says, or you said, uh, nothing has turned out like I planned it. Life is so completely unpredictable, so far out of my control, it's more than I ever imagined. I have learned to embrace entropy and find meaning in the mayhem. When did you start to have this kind of self-realization about uh, the craziness, but learning to embrace it? Ah, uh, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and I can tell you the first time I saw my life first out of Proverbs, which basically says the same thing. And I was in college between my junior and senior year of college. And I mentioned earlier, I went to college on a scholarship that you had summer travel experiences. And I was actually in Singapore working for Singapore Youth for Christ. And it was an incredible experience. And somehow I convinced a secular scholarship that travel abroad, study abroad could actually support a mission trip. So a friend of mine and I traveled throughout Singapore doing Christian music concerts in every high school there. It was phenomenal. But I remember having one of those crazy days where we've been all over the city and I came back into the Singapore Youth for Christ headquarters and in the middle of a stairwell i literally was looking down at the stairs just looked up i hit this poster and it had a really ugly picture of a flower on it but it had this verse and it was proverbs nineteen twenty one. it says man may plan all things comma but the lord's will be done and i thought huh isn't that the theme of my summer never in a million years did i think my summer abroad study abroad was going to be kind of missionary work and doing missions and that verse has resonated and come back to me so many times. And I found myself using it in so many situations. Coming to medicine, I came kicking and screaming. It's not what I thought. I never thought being a missionary would be talking to patients in a 10 by 10 exam room. I swore that I would never have a boyfriend in college or high school and I ended up marrying my high school sweetheart. So go figure. And then to start out in a career and end up so different, it's been absolutely incredible. With my children, I live this every day. I never 
ever thought I would be the mother of four kids. In fact, my husband, who knows me better than any soul on the planet, used to say to me, he's like, you know, I love you. You're an awesome person, but I really never thought you'd be a real good parent because you're not very nurturing. Like you're kind of a get over it kind of person. But I think something flips inside of you when you become a parent. And I have learned that every day is better than the last with my kids. And every day in the midst of the pandemonium and the chaos, you just kind of have to embrace it and figure out there's a lesson here. There's a joy here. Sometimes the joy is in a shattered television, which happened to us a couple of weeks ago. And some days it's in a broken dishwasher lid that somebody steps on, but sometimes you just kind of laugh. And so that's been my theme verse. I do have a, a former partner in medicine that jokingly said to me that entropy surrounds you. And in fact, the working title of the book when I first started write, writing it was Embracing Entropy. Book coach said that was too complicated because it was too technical, but entropy is the state of matter going into disarray and lack of control all the time. And I feel like that's my life. But I have learned that in the midst of that utter chaos, you just got to find joy and you see God working. It's been pretty cool. And listening to you and just the the smile and the, I don't know, the way that you embrace your whole description there. I'm thinking of someone who may be listening to us today, uh, maybe a resident, maybe a fellow, maybe a, a fellow practitioner around the country. And, and anytime you go to a a conference or you hear somebody being interviewed, there's, it's easy to put them up on a pedestal. You know, you're, you're a practicing physician, you juggle a panel of patients, you're in leadership at the hospital, you juggle four kids, pets, church, volunteering, board work. Do you ever just feel flat out overwhelmed? Every single day. <laughs> That's a funny question because I, by nature, am a type A control freak personality. And I realize I'm really never in control of my circumstance. I just try to convince myself that I'm in control of my circumstances. I sometimes have to step back and remind myself that I don't control anybody. I can't make a patient do anything. I cannot make an 11-year-old boy pick up his socks despite my absolute best effort on a daily basis. I have to recognize that I fail, that I get the diagnosis wrong, that I yell at a kid when I'm really frustrated from something that happens at work. And I have to give myself grace. I think the ability to recognize that we're all broken, that we're all forgiven, and that we all make mistakes every day is what gives me the ability to, to keep going. And you absolutely have to have a sense of humor. You just got to laugh at yourself. The first time we tried to do this interview, an hour before, I ripped a toenail off at a meeting. <laughs> and I came in to do this podcast in excruciating pain, wanting to die. And I laughed when I left here because the equipment didn't work and we didn't get to record it the first time. Yep. That is my life. That is entropy. Sometimes the strangest mishaps turn into um, great fortunes and you just have to roll with it. That's hugely comforting. I was worried it was me for a minute, but now <laughs> I see it's you. So. <laughs> it's me. It's me. It's me. I I'm the hot mess. And so what does, as we kind of wrap up this uh, session, what it, where do you find wellness? What does wellness uh, look like for you? So I think it's perspective and priorities. First and foremost, I cling staunchly to my faith. I mean, I carve out every day a time to read my Bible and to really focus on what it's saying. For me, I have to have structure. So I have a very clear reading through the Bible path that keeps me on task. There's my control freak coming out. 
But I have to just carve out that time. For me, it's at the end of the day. For others, it's at the beginning of the day. First, that has to be my focus. Second, my family. And sometimes as a professional, and I work crazy hours and try to take care of lots of patients and do a lot of administrative things, sometimes my family gets the worst of me. And I have to consciously make an effort that before I walk in the door to my house to say, you know, God, these children are a gift. This is a blessing. This man you've given me is an incredible gift from you. Help me not to be the devil incarnate when I walk in the door and take out my day on them. And then third, you, you got to take care of your body. I do get up every morning at 430 and I go work out and patients look at me like, what is wrong with you? I'm like, well, number one, there's no integrity in telling a patient to do something you're not willing to do yourself. And I'm a much nicer person when I go exercise. With my ripped off toenail this morning, I met my running buddy and she saw that I was limping. She's like, hey, why don't we walk the four miles today? I'm like, thank you. So I was out there this morning waddling around in my uh, running shoes, not running, but the key is to make it a priority in what you do. I think it's just focus. You you got to take time for that. And then don't panic when it, things don't go as planned because they won't yeah. ever. Good words. Good words. Why don't we take a pause here? We'll finish the interview in our next section where we're going to talk, I know, about uh, some of the trends in medicine that you're seeing, uh, physician burnout. So thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. I'm Will Coster, and on this episode's White Coat Achievements, a segment that highlights noteworthy achievements by your friends and colleagues, we're highlighting a female physician who brought 20 other female physicians and dentists together to share their memoirs in a book titled The Chronicles of Women in White Coats. Dr. Amber Robbins is a board-certified family medicine doctor practicing in Arlington, Virginia. In addition to being a best-selling author, she's also the co-founder of the Women in White Coats blog. Dr. Robbins has written for various media, including the PBS NewsHour, Huffington Post, ABC News, BlackDoctor.org, KevinMD, and many more. The book launch in May of 2018 gave rise to a bigger conversation about women in medicine, which led to the creation of the Women in White Coats blog. It's a movement all about women in white coats empowering one another. The blog has allowed the conversation to go beyond those 20 doctors and highlight valuable stories from other women in medicine. Here's one of my favorite quotes from their website. Anytime women come together with a collective intention, it's a powerful thing. When women come together with a collective intention, magic happens. We applaud Dr. Robbins and wanted to highlight her on today's White Coat Achievements and wish her the best in continuing her goal of motivating others to achieve their own personal success. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Amber Robbins or the Women in White Coats blog, there will be some links in the show notes. As always, if you know someone who is wearing a white coat and is achieving something noteworthy, please drop us a line. We'd love to hear about it and might even feature them in a future episode. But again, this episode's White Coat Achievement goes to Dr. Amber Robbins. Carmen Teague, doctor, leader, mom, volunteer, navigator of life's craziness with grace and occasionally even poise. Again, her book is Motherhood, Medicine, and Mayhem. You can find it on Amazon or track her down through her website, which is carmen-teague.com, C-A-R-M-E-N-T-E-A-G-U-E.com. Uh, as always, if you've enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to subscribe and also give us a review on iTunes or Google Play. 
Also, I want to let you know we're planning a series in the coming months on marriage and money. And so if you and your spouse would be willing to tell us some of the story of how you've navigated money issues in your marriage, or maybe you have a friend you want to volunteer in your place, um, please drop me an email, shane at whitecoatwell.com. And finally, we've started a community of people interested in white coat wellness. And so we have a private closed group on Facebook called White Coat Wellness specifically to help you connect with others in medicine or dentistry who want to share life together. Hope you'll check that out. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you back here next time. This episode of White Coat Wellness is over, but you're not alone on your journey toward financial wellness. Spa Dame Rinteni has been helping physicians and dentists with their financial planning for over 60 years, and we'd love to answer any questions that would be of help to you. Visit sdtplanning.com today and take your financial wellness to new levels. Once again, that's sdtplanning.com, and we'll see you on the next episode of White Coat Wellness.